Executive Director of Use and Play. Wade, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me on, Emma. Thanks. Uh, so I heard via email, actually, that you just got back from Mumbai. You and I kind of have that in common. <laughs> really? Yeah, I had actually, I've actually, uh, I'm originally from India, but I was in Mumbai for, for two weeks, and I just got back about a week ago. Oh, wow. So we were there around the same time. Yeah. How was it? How long did you stay for? I was there from Tuesday of last week until Sunday. Oh, nice. And were you there related to You Can Play activities or just going to take a look? Uh, so for some other outside work that I do, but um, I was, I found Mumbai to be one of the most family-oriented places just amongst the working class. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I immediately felt accepted, felt, felt, felt loved. You know, it was, I didn't know what to expect, but I wasn't expecting that. That's awesome. And was it your first time in India? Yes, yes. And it will not be my last. <laughs> That's great to hear. Yeah, it can be uh, It can be a little bit of a challenge because everything is so different, but I'm glad that you enjoyed your time there. Um, yeah, it, it didn't feel much different from New York City in a weird way, you know, with <laughs> all the people, the traffic, the commotion. So I was able to kind of ease into that, you know, just from being here for so many years. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I'm I'm surprised. I always find Mumbai very overwhelming, so I'm glad that that you liked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so moving on to you can play. Um, so the NHL has hockey is for everyone month. It runs through February, and you can play is a huge part of that initiative. Uh, just for a little bit of background, how did you get involved in you can play and uh, what led to the involvement with the NHL? Yeah, so um, so I came out as openly gay in 2012, and at mm-hmm. that time, you can play was kind of in its infancy stages, and the co-founders, including Patrick Berg, Brian Kitts, and Glenn Whitman, they were looking for an executive director, and with me being a former athlete, being someone who was also gay, they wanted someone who had a real tangible experience with um, with what it meant to be an athlete and to be gay, but also someone that had a robust background working with LGBTQ youth. Um, Mm -hmm. And I happened to fit kind of all those boxes. And then um, I worked with You Can Play, you know, for the first couple of years. And Patrick Burke, who who works for for the NHL and and Mm -hmm. his his father being a former GM, Mm -hmm. um, it was a natural fit. So we started having really robust, beautiful conversations with the NHL to really figure out, like, what's the best way for the NHL and you can play the partner. And this Hockey for Everything month is really the culmination of a couple of years of really trying to figure out how can we show uh, the sports world that NHL is an inclusive space and to make sure that anyone who identifies as LGBT felt safe in a, in a NHL locker room or front office. I was doing this season that they haven't done in the past is that they have designated a you-can-play ambassador. So that's one player from each team uh, that is there to, I guess, represent or discuss these issues and be a voice in the locker room. Is that something that you had um, a hand in developing? Yes. So we spent the last, I would say, six months really working hand-in-glove with the NHL to really come up with something that was new, that was creative, that no other league had really done um, to kind mm-hmm. of separate, you know, the NHL from, from 
from the other leagues and to have an, an individual on each team who can be that representative, who can be the voice for the, the LGBT and the hockey community is revolutionary. So we're truly excited that this partnership has turned out the way that it has. Did you, what is the sense that you got while you were talking with teams? Did it seem like, uh, was there any kind of pushback or not even pushback? Was, did you sense hesitancy um, or did you feel like the time had, had come for this and people were, were more accepting or, or happy to do it? Definitely more of the latter. Um, you know, okay. the NHL has been a partner of ours since the very beginning of You Can Play. And mm-hmm. and what we really found is that, you know, the NHL, again, they've, they've been trying to figure out what exactly is the right type of partnership to um, to have. So we've been, been doing individual team, team trainings. We've done trainings for the NHL front office. And now this is just really the natural progression for what's next for us, for us as a partner of, of the NHL. Mm-hmm. And it seems um, we, we don't really need to get into politics here, but just in terms of <laughs> everything is political, everything is political. But I would just say that in terms of the political climate um, that, you know, America and the U.S. is kind of in and in a, in a weird way, Canada kind of by extension, it feels that it feels very politically relevant. Um, you know, of course, the NHL had planned this regardless of what was happening in politics, because you know, acceptance and inclusivity is something that they have, you know, have preached for several years or for quite some time now. Um, does it add a little bit of extra weight to what is happening? Because it feels like every Pride night, every You Can Play night uh, takes on a little bit more meaning. Um, I would say yes and no, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, that from an organizational standpoint that that we feel that our work is any more relevant now because mm-hmm. of the political climate, but I do think that it puts an extra spotlight on what's what's happening. I think in a really beautiful way. Also, um, from just an LGBT standpoint, since this new administration has been in office, there has been a heightened awareness around the erosion of LGBTQ rights, and then mm-hmm. there has also been an uptick in uh, LGBTQ suicide. So this is one of the ways that that we can show you young people and adults who identify as LGBT or those that, that don't, that the NHL, um, absent of what's happening kind of on a political landscape, really mm-hmm. is focused on making sure that everyone knows that hockey is for everyone, and that includes individuals who identify as LGBT. And has your work extended with other leagues as well? Um, I know you're a former NFL player, and you're on the NFL's Diversity Council, if, if I have that correct? No, so I'm not on their council, so I do um, a lot of their uh, diversity and inclusion work specifically around LGBTQ rights. So mm-hmm. so we, as you can play, have partnerships with, with the NFL, with the NHL, the CFL, Major League Soccer. We work pretty closely with the USOC. Um, so we're an organization that is really uh, dedicated our work to working in partnership with leagues um, to really help help them to understand, like, why this work is actually really important but to also find find ways that fit with the work that they're already doing. So for the NFL, they've been doing work around respect at, at work. So how can we add our conversation to what the NFL is already doing to make sure that players understand that, that part of being respectful is allowing an individual to show up as their full and authentic self. And if that means that, that you have a teammate, 
of someone in the front office or even a coach who identifies as LGBT, that those players deserve the same amount of respect as anyone else. Is there any difference in kind of the locker rooms that you're going into, whether it's by league or by team? Um, I'm sure, I'm sure they all have different challenges. Um, but have you noticed maybe, so if I've got this right from reading your bio, you started your advocacy work in about 2010. Um, have you yeah. seen kind of that shift in, you know, possibly the last seven years that you've been doing it, whether it's in locker rooms or outside of the locker room on the field? Yeah, you know, from a locker room standpoint, what I found is that if you create the right environment, uh, that that you give athletes the space to actually talk about this issue without judgment, you get a very full and robust conversation where everyone is um, is being honest and saying, hey, like, you know, I may not have ever had an experience with someone who identifies as LGBT. I don't have a problem with it, but what I would like is just the opportunity to have an opinion, right? Um, so mm-hmm. I think the work that we do and you can play creates the opportunities for players to have their thoughts out there and for their thoughts to be respected and that we're responsible for holding these players accountable. Um, I think from a league standpoint, our message has been, uh, I would say, very well received. Um, And I I think that as, you know, the world grows, as as there are more visibly um, out LGBT individuals, it it makes our conversation a lot easier. Um, Mm -hmm. From from a college and high school standpoint, the conversations are very different, you know. You know, uh, you know, as as James Baldwin would would say, being kind of a young person is an incoherent age, right? So, you know, talking to young kids who are in middle school and in high school around this issue is very different from talking Mm -hmm. to adults. And what have you found? um, You kind of touched on this a little bit that an open environment is important, but on the on the flip side of it, what behaviors do you think are unproductive? I think it's something that a lot of teams kind of struggle with, like in terms to address. And you oftentimes um, see athletes kind of be afraid to take a stand or have an opinion just, and I don't want to put words in somebody's mouth, but just because they don't have the right language to kind of address it. What behaviors do you think in that environment are kind of unproductive? Yeah, you know, one of the greatest challenges, so whether you're talking about LGBT rights or racial justice or gender equality, is that mm-hmm. there are a lot of players who have opinions about these issues but just don't have the historical background and, and education, right? Mm-hmm. So most players just don't want to say the wrong thing and be labeled racist, yeah. homophobic, sexist, or what have you. So our exactly. responsibility as an, as an organization is to first educate them, right? Um, mm-hmm. when, when I do a lot of our trainings, they're closed-door training, so there's not a coach there. It's just me and the players. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, being a former athlete who understands the importance of creating an environment where you can kind of say, hey, like, I'm not expecting you to show up perfect. I'm not perfect also. But what there is a responsibility for me to do is to hold you accountable for your language and your words, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that if you create the space for athletes, to be honest, they're really vulnerable and they tell you they say, hey, I actually don't have a problem playing with someone who identifies as LGBT. But what mm-hmm. I do have a problem with is someone putting the microphone in my face asking me how I feel. And when I say the wrong thing, I become a villain. And it's not that I care either way. I've just never been asked. You know, I've never right. spent in a copious amount of time really thinking about this, this issue. So don't hold me to a standard that, you know, that the lion's share of Americans wouldn't be able to uh, to be mm-hmm. to be held to you know I think 
for myself, you know, I'm a gay man, but prior to probably 2008, I wouldn't have had the language to speak about this, you know, in a certain mm-hmm. eloquent, respectful way. And and I'm LGBT, right? So I can only imagine the challenges of someone who actually never spent any time, you know, uh, really spending time thinking about this issue. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to talk about this week's sponsor, Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe, recipe delivery service in the country. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. I'm super excited. I'm getting my first Blue Apron delivery in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I'm a vegetarian, which is great because they have a lot of vegetarian options. And I'm also not a great cook, uh, a very, very beginner level, um, which if you listen to the podcast, you probably already know. So the couple of meals that I'm looking at to get started with are the bok choy and marinated apples, vegetable chili with baked sweet potatoes. All of that sounds really good. Um, It's also really affordable. So for less than, I think it's about $10 per person per meal, uh, I can get Blue Apron delivered for a couple of times a week. Um, The recipes are also seasonal. So if eating local is important to you, Blue Apron is a great option for that. I think um, each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and ingredients pre-proportioned so that you can prepare them in 40 minutes or less. Also, because Blue Apron is sponsoring for the Win podcast, um, we've got a deal set up so that you can get three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash for the win. Again, that is blueapron.com slash for the win. So check that out. Use that code and let us know what you think. What about this kind of encourages you? You know, you've been doing it for so long. Um, has there been an instance or something that kind of stands out in your mind where you're like, okay, we we really reached somebody here? <laughs> well, I would say the the biggest compliment that I'm given are by my close friends who say, hey, you know, I'm much more conscious of the words that, that I say. This mm-hmm. happened the other day. I spoke up about it. I felt really good about myself that, you know, a year ago I may not have said anything, but just hearing you talk about this, you giving me the space to be vulnerable and, and imperfect has really helped. So when I hear friends and athletes say, hey, like, you know, I want to figure out how I can get involved, but I really don't don't know. You know, just mm-hmm. to see grown men be really vulnerable about a subject that that um, that that can, that can really uh, have them have their seats held to the fire is just really a beautiful space to see grown men in, and then mm-hmm. to um, have people just call me and say, "Hey, like I saw this on television. I'm concerned about it. Can you offer me some?" perspective or maybe I tweeted something and someone was like hey you know what can you kind of break that down for for me a a little deeper um this kind of touches a little bit on something else I wanted to talk to you about so I watched your TED talk on the myth (laughs) of masculinity (laughs) no I wasn't supposed to (laughs) no no I'm just teasing I'm teasing please watch I, I hope everyone watches yeah well well it's kind of interesting um because that that talk, the myth of masculinity, kind of dovetails into how you describe yourself as a feminist and how you said that that was actually as important to you um, as the uh, LGBTQ portion of kind of the advocacy work that you're doing. And as we kind of talk about, you know, one of the big issues that we're facing in the NHL right now 
is, you know, concussions. And one thing that I'm always really interested in is why players continue to go back out there over and over again, you know, after they've been hurt as like detriment to, you know, detriment to their bodies and their kind of playing ability. Um, But can you talk a little bit about your, you know, maybe sum up your TED talk? Uh, Because I think it really is interesting and touches on all of these different issues. Yeah. You you know, um, I would say, you know, the biggest takeaway from my TED, TED talk for me is that I was never taught how to love myself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that I saw this shirt the other day and, and it said, you, you know, Matt, you know, uh, masculinity in the, in the NASC, you know, is a scam. Right. And it's oh. just what, what masculinity spells in the short firm spells scam. And right. I think that when you think about how masculinity in itself is just a performance that we're all mm-hmm. performing for each other. What I really realized is that I was performing all these, you know, really uh, toxic tropes of what it meant to be a man because no mm-hmm. one ever told me that being a man is not monolithic. Um, and mm-hmm. when you think about, you know, the idea of con- concussions or guys who may, you know, have a, have an injury and, and they play, play through it, um, it's just that. It's this idea mm-hmm. that toughness is located in this one type of thing. And that yep. if you aren't that, then you're not a man. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the one challenge that I think is why I'm so passionate a- around gender equality is that we've set it up that male and female are automatically oppositional, right? right. That, that if you're a man and you're not masculine and you're perceived as feminine, that that's an automatic bad thing and vice versa. So how do we kind of complicate that conversation? How do we uh, create space for people to understand that gender performance, that gender expression, all of it is beautiful. All of it should, should be accepted. And there's not one right way to show up as a man or a woman. So how do we um, create the space for all of us to show up as ourselves? And I think that if, if, if we do that, we're a lot less exhausted um, and we're a lot more happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I mean, it was really interesting because uh, sports and definitely, I, I don't know, it is, I mean, it's such a hard thing to sum up because uh, there are so many different things that go into the athlete's uh, psychological point of view. And a lot of this, uh, especially for male athletes, it has to do with this myth of masculinity that you spoke about, but also kind of the single-minded focus of you are good at this one thing. And this one thing is, is what gives you your identity, um, which, you know, can be pretty detrimental, like say if somebody gets injured or not. Um, there are other things that you can play does like, you know, outreach with communities and things like that. Are there any plans um, to, are any plans to expand on what you guys have done with the NHL right now? Yeah. So one of the big things that we launched um, with all of the sports league is an initiative called high five and it's a play mm-hmm. on, on the words, but what it really is is to change the dynamic between pro athletes and the LGBT youth community, right? So mm-hmm. all these sports leagues historically have always done work where they've taken players to visit young young people. So what High Five is that we want to be intentional to take players to visit LGBTQ youth in their centers, mm-hmm. but, ju- but not just have the players kind of show up and give a talk, but actually have us sit in a circle where we're kind of um, idealizing this idea of family and have both sides to share stories so that you mm-hmm. can see yourself in the other. 
oftentimes LGBTQ kids don't don't see themselves um, in a in, in an NHL player. But if a mm-hmm. player can share a story about a time that that he struggled with his self confidence or or that mm-hmm. he struggled to to be himself, then those kids can go, wow, like here's this pro athlete who's making millions of dollars who has the exact same challenges that that I do and vice mm-hmm. versa, right? So that an NHL player can sit with, with a young person who identifies as trans and learn the importance of making sure that the person is referred to by their preferred gender pronoun, right? So mm-hmm. how do you have an exchange of education where it's not just players, as I said earlier, who are just showing up to tell their stories and leave, but a right. true engagement where, where everyone walks out of there going, wow, I saw myself in the other, and I mm-hmm. have a better understanding of what the experience of the other is. I mean, a lot of the things that you're talking about are incredibly universal because in the end it just comes down to education and communication in a lot of different ways, like across the arena, even if, you know, one of the things that the NHL did is the pride tape, which in and of itself, I think is still just a visible reminder, like that this is what we stand for. And this is, you know, the, this is what we want to promote. Um, Even though it doesn't take up a a lot of space for, for guys to be able to do something that small, it still sends the right message and gets people on board with the idea. Um, you know, uh, ta Coates said that there's nothing near about symbols, and that's very yeah. true, right? So mm-hmm. the fact that I could be a seven-year-old kid who may be struggling with his or her gender identity or sexual orientation, but I'm a hockey fan, and I see one of my favorite players with pride tape, right, that, that, that makes me feel more confident in myself and, mm-hmm. and who I am. And what the NHL is, is doing is revolutionary. The fact that um, that the entire MSG Madison Square Garden was lit up in the LGBTQ colors um, mm-hmm. and that people are walking by there at night being able to know, wow, like that these big institutions, right, who uh, who people don't often think of as social justice places are actually doing real social justice work. And I think mm-hmm. that we have to step back and go, what does this mean to our future generations of LGBTQ mm-hmm. youth who are going to say, wow, like maybe I can play sports because, you know, the stats say that most young people who identify as LGBT quit sports right, right before high school. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that there will, will be an impact, you know, about, mm-hmm. you know, what the NFL is doing, what the NHL is doing, and all these, these other leagues that will change the perceptions for kids, you know, in the next five to ten years. And do you think that, well, I don't want to say with league, but do you think that we are ready for an openly gay male athlete uh, outside of Major League Soccer? Like, we've already had uh, that kind of barrier been broken. But what do you think it's going to, what do you think it's going to take for um, widespread acceptance? So I think, um, I'm not sure that we are or we aren't ready. But I think I believe that the players in the locker rooms are ready. So what do I mean by that? Right, is that Mm -hmm. is that there are now players in in these leagues that I know of, right, who are Mm -hmm. open to their team, right? Similar to how Mm -hmm. Michael Sam was open to his team in, in Missouri and only his teammates knew, and there was no issues, like no one cared to the team was hyper successful, right? That exists now. What I mm-hmm. don't think that we're ready for is a player being open and the whole world knows about it 
because mm-hmm. we as a community have yet to uh, reconcile the fact that you can be gay and you can play a sport and you can play one of the big five hyper-masculine sports. I don't think that as a world we're ready for, for that because we have yet to under, to to uh, unlearn that being gay does not mean weakness, right? We've yet to unlearn that being gay does not mean feminine. We have yet to unlearn that women can do everything that a man can do and can do that just as well. So until we unlearn this, I don't think that the world is, is yet safe enough for a player to be open about it. But the locker room itself is open because I know that it exists now. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I think that one of, and, you know, this might be a media issue as well, is that one of the storylines that we've always tended to focus on is, is the NFL ready? Is the NHL ready? And, uh, you know, your words are pretty contrary to that. The leagues and the teams are, are totally ready and are embracing that and accepting that. Um, but where the problem lies is going to be with the rest of us. It's going to be with the fans in the arena and the people who buy the merchandise, um, who just haven't really been able to accept that, which I think And it's all fear-based, right? Yeah. Like, you know, all of these things just align fear. And Mm -hmm. because it's never, quote-unquote, been done before, right, then Mm -hmm. there is this this idea that are these these leagues ready, right? Like, are we asking ourselves, are we ready, right? Mm -hmm. Are we ready to just turn on the television and and see an NHL player get drafted, kiss his partner, when he's drafted, similar to what Michael Sam did, and not make yep. a big deal out of it. Like, are we right. ready to do that, or are we ready to actually make it a story and then find those individual people, you know, who are more likely to, to be the outliers that aren't accepting and then have a laser-like focus it and say, this person here is, isn't accepting. And we forget about the lion's share of the other individuals who, one, either don't care, two, are, are very accepting, or three, just say, hey, can that person play ball, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and right. I think that I think that the WNBA is doing a beautiful job of just saying, hey, we have straight players, we have lesbian players, they mm-hmm. they play ball, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a great way to go about it. Uh, do you do you? I mean, I don't want to say preference is not really the right word that I'm looking for, but is your hope? that somebody is willing to come out and wear that mantle across any of the leagues? Uh, because like you said, it would be really tough for that person to, to have to bear that weight. Um, but do you, do you kind of hope that it happens soon? Or do you think that, you know, it's going to be a while? That when, I, I hope that when someone's ready, right, mm-hmm. that they do it. Like, I'm not really interested in um, having someone be, you know, the flag carrier of what it means to be, you know, the first LGBT, you know, active player in sports, because I think that that's an unfair weight for, for anyone to carry, right? Mm-hmm. But what I do hope is that if this player does show up, you know, he educates himself first on what it means, one, to be an athlete, two, mm-hmm. to be an LGBT person, three, to be an LGBT athlete. Um, mm-hmm. Because when you talk to most players who are not out to the public, what they tell you is that, hey, I just want to play ball. Like, right. I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up a desiring to be the first NHL player who is, who is gay. I grew, I grew up just wanting to, to be an NHL player, right? So, so mm-hmm. how do we, as a world, create the conditions for that to be okay? And I don't think that the mm-hmm. conditions are there yet. That makes a lot of sense, and I will say that everything I've seen in the last couple of months does not 
uh, I don't disagree with that. Um, my last question for you uh, before I let you go is that how 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 do we help, how do we work towards that right? How do we work towards as as a fan base as you know people who love hockey or who love football um, and kind of want to see sports as well because a lot of the argument sometimes is that sports should be a safe place right sports sports yeah. shouldn't be about social justice and stuff like that but what do you think that fan bases should start doing um or i don't want to say people in general but in that sports environment is there is there a hope for you of what you would like to see people do yeah, that's a large question. Um, I know. I know. I I'm sorry. It's, it's a very it's, broad question. No, 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 no. It's fine. <laughs> I think um, that it it all comes down to us as individuals, right? Like, what mm-hmm. am I going going to do as an individual to unlearn all the phobias that I've grown up with? And then, how can I start to have those conversations in my household, right? So, mm-hmm. I think it's got to start at the home, right? That, um, and then that'll just spawn out to the rest of us so similar to how some of my friends can tell me hey like because you talk about these things all the time i'm much more aware of my own you know for lack of a better word shit mm-hmm. right so how can mm-hmm. we start having those those smaller conversations just on an individual scale with your brother with your sister with your aunt with your uncle like, like how do we have to start those types of conversations and then have a pebble you know just drop in the water that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't think mm-hmm. that we should try to, you know, solve this huge problem, you know, mm-hmm. you know, from the top. It's got to start from the bottom up. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk with me. Um, is there anything that, one of the things I always like to ask, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? Um, I would say that the only thing that I would add is, is that we're never going to solve the LGBT dilemma until we solve the sexism dilemma. I'm a firm believer that the root of homophobia is sexism, right? So until we create a world that is safe for women to show up as their full and authentic selves, to not have to conform to these uh, very uh, monolithic roles that we often place them, other men, we will never solve the LGBT problem. Oh my God, preach! I I had read that and I kind of forgot to ask you about it because we dug so much into the other side of it. <laughs> uh, but yes, that is a it, it to me is a huge part of that argument because, it, like I guess, it goes to what you had said—the mask of masculinity. That if you just think in binaries and have already described one thing as lesser than because you deem it to be weak and, and feminine, um, then then we're never going to be able to progress past that. So, yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right. Have a good day.